cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. The words of President George Washington. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host, as always, is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we look at the challenges facing the Republic this week. We'll cover issues of the week in our Hot Take segment and wrap with our Guardian of the Week. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. But first, Patrick, what is new on the polling front? I'm going to talk about uh, a recent uh, poll from The Economist and YouGov. And I was already thinking about this poll when you actually flagged it for today's episode, Ian. Yep. Uh, And so in that poll, they asked this question, which Republican president was better? And then they compared Trump to a bunch of past Republican presidents. Now, I have a feeling that they really wanted to get an idea of how Trump fares against Nixon since we're in this whole impeachment process. So among all Americans, Tricky Dick outpolls Trump as a better president by 56% to 44%. But what made people really sit up and take notice was how Trump did against these other presidents, specifically among Republicans in the public. And I think that's what's caught your eye, right? Yeah, what caught my eye was this, and I'll read out all the numbers. Amongst Republicans, Trump versus the Bushes, uh, 71% supported Trump over the Bushes. Against Reagan, Reagan took the took the uh, the win. Uh, 41% went with Trump and 59% went with Reagan. Amongst Ford, it's 82 for Trump, 18 for Ford. Amongst Nixon, it's 86 for Trump, 14 for Ford. Amongst Eisenhower, it's 65 for Trump, 35 for Eisenhower. It's something. But this is the one that made me put it on the rundown. Against Abraham Lincoln, 53% of Republicans support President Trump and 47% supported President Lincoln. Right. So by a a small majority, more Republicans think President Trump was a better Republican president than Abraham Lincoln. And I, <laughs> yeah. I and yeah. And but I want to make sure it, the the question that was asked was which Republican president was better, Trump or Lincoln? And I think that has a lot to do with the way this question was was answered, because what a Republican means today is not at all what a Republican means in terms of if you're thinking of Abraham Lincoln. In 1863, 64. Right. Yeah. right. So I think a lot of it has to do with just recency, you know, who's more, re- you know, the presidents that you know. We, mm-hmm. always, we, we know that's always an, an impact. Uh, you know, Ronald Reagan, as you pointed out, was the only one among Republicans who beat Uh, Donald Trump in terms of being a better Republican president, better for the Republican brand, I guess it was. It's just Lincoln is not seen as a Republican president. Well, he was, in in so many ways, he was more of a Democrat than a Republican. And if you look at what he had done during the Civil War, there are probably numerous Republicans who are down south who are still holding on to the Confederacy and look at Lincoln. I mean, now that we're breaking it down in this way, looking at Lincoln not as a friend but a foe. So even though he's part of the, it's Lincoln's party of the Republicans, you know, if you really look at what what he accomplished, uh, for many Republicans, probably is not very well received. 
Yeah. So I think I think the results of this poll are, are more about what the term Republican actually means today mm-hmm. uh, than anything else, than, than the fact people thinking Trump is a better president than Lincoln overall. Uh, so, uh, hey, just one of the one of the. Uh, Criticism of, of this poll, though, was, is it about recency? Would uh, Barack Obama do the same against, say, Franklin Roosevelt? Mm-hmm. And we Because the poll didn't ask that question. So here's a little teaser. Uh, we at Monmouth are actually going to try a little something about these comparisons with both Trump and Obama versus another president. And, my, and as a president, you might be familiar with there, Ian. Uh, so <laughs> really? it's a little tease for next okay. week. Next week, we'll be taking a look at this. That's exciting. And speaking of next week, let's just talk about last week. You know, yep. we took the week off uh, from doing the podcast because it was we typically do the show on Thursdays, and Thursday was Thanksgiving. I, I have to say, it's just I'm really just delighted to be back on air with you and, and back with our listeners, really, uh, putting this back out. I, I miss doing yes. it. I'm, you know, we didn't talk as much as we would typically. Right. Uh, so I miss you, and I'm, I'm really happy to be back doing it as we move forward right Right now to um, how the Republic has been challenged this week. Do you have yes. any thoughts? Yes. So fortunately, we didn't have too much in the way of breaking news last week. So we didn't, That's true. we didn't miss a lot, but we still have a lot to cover this week. There's no mm-hmm. question about it because it was a big week. So what, what happened this week? So the first thing that happened was the Intelligence Committee released its report of its findings. Mm-hmm. And then the Republicans released the response. So we have two reports that were released early in the week. So the Intelligence Committee report, which is basically the Democrats' report, boils down what happened to basically two charges. One was abuse of power. The President Trump has abused his power of office. And the other one is that he obstructed Congress. Uh, by not providing witnesses, by making sure that uh, the information was not shared that they had asked for, even under subpoena. Uh, does not specifically mention bribery as, as one of the charges, although that'll come up in our conversation today because it was a key uh, issue in this week's hearing. Then the Republican response to that is that, yeah, but uh, Donald Trump did all those things that you said in terms of the facts. He made the call. He talked to Zelensky. He talked about an investigation. But none of that was motivated by personal gain. Everything that he did was completely above board. Mm-hmm. That's the Republicans' response. So that's kind of what set us up for, for this week. So before we get to the judiciary hearing, you have any thoughts on, on those two reports? I mean, it's sort of it, it is unfortunately as partisan as what we saw in the Intelligence Committee and as we're going to be seeing in the Judiciary Committee. I mean, we have two sort of sides set up. Um, and I will say that watching the, the judiciary hearing yesterday, uh, I, I sort of longed for the days of the Intelligence Committee, uh, partially because of the length of the judiciary hearing, because there's so many more members who get a chance to speak. Um, but also it was it was sort of clearer and had a better head at the top with, with Adam Schiff. But we're going to get into that in a moment. Uh, but it wasn't terribly surprising and, and yet still disappointing. Now, how about you? Um, yes, uh, it was. I... I disappointed in the way this process has rolled out. And I've said this all along, is that it's all boiling down to this one Ukraine incident. I'm going to leave that for a a minute because I want to talk about the hearing itself. Uh, But the common theme in the hearing was, okay, the president is not a monarch. He's different from a monarch. And the framers made sure that that no man is above the law. That was clear. Uh, And I think that is not in dispute, uh, that there's impeachment is in the Constitution, specifically to show that no man is above the law. And also this whole canard about you can't overturn a, a, an election is 
really absolutely antithetical to what the framers were saying, because that's why the framers put in impeachment. Yeah. Impeachment was specifically to overturn an election if it turns out that that person is abusing their office. And right? there was so quite that, a bit of that also in the judiciary hearing. We've been talking about this as well. The idea that if you just go to the next election, it does nothing to stop the person who's in power from doing everything they can, legal or illegal, to make sure that they continue in office. And that's like one of the, the main reasons why this is so important and so time sensitive. Yes. And I think that that's the key about why are we holding this, you know, hearing right now. And I will say, I think one thing that did come out of the judiciary hearing that helped to frame this a little better than, say, just the intelligence hearing, which was just focused on the facts of what happened right. in that Ukraine call, was why would you why would you do this? And the reason why you would do this is not just simply because it's in the Constitution that you can do this, but that what is happening in the context of, of the facts is that it is actually about the, the idea that the next election or the threat that the next election will be undermined by a foreign entity with the, the support or, the, or, or, or abetting by the president himself. Which we've already seen in 2016 when the president asked Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's emails, and it worked, and they did indeed hack the emails right after he asked. I remember actually watching that moment and thinking, is he really asking Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's emails? Like, well, they're not going to do that. I mean, that's insane. Like, he's so public about it. Like, you're really going to say, hey, Russia, if you do this, I think the American press is going to be really happy with you, which was what he said. And then that's exactly what he did. And that's exactly how it went. And we saw the repercussions of that. So if you're not going th through this impeachment process, you're sort of giving free reign to continue to do that. Right. And, and anything else right. is really what, what we have and we're, the issue that we're, we're living under. Now, the witnesses were on two sides of this. Obviously, there are three Democratic witnesses and one Republican mm -hmm. witness. And now all yes. these witnesses were law school professors. Uh, yes. experts in the constitution but and impressive in their own way right, all, all four of them all four of them impressive their own way so why don't we uh, you know because our listeners can go and listen to a whole bunch of impeachment podcasts and read news and so forth but you know what they come to us is a, a little different take on these things which is not just the substance but also how did that person do in terms of moving presenting forward, their story presenting yeah. their story in a way that moves the ball down the down down the field to protect the republic. So why don't we take each of these uh, four witnesses uh, one by one? Yes. Starting with Noah Feldman from Ooh, Harvard University. I liked me some Noah Feldman yesterday. Watching Noah Feldman, here what I thought was I don't know if I've, if I've expressed this, but he's like the the one that all of the Saturday Night Live characters actors are begging to uh, yeah. perform because he had such a unique style of speaking. Um, he was incredibly. Uh, passionate, indignant, and controlled. He was fantastic in his work. At one point uh, later in the process, he was asked about that, you know, in May, you wrote this article saying that going forward with impeachment was a mistake. And I really felt that the Republican member at that time was a, in a gotcha moment with Noah Feldman. And he came back strong. And he said, yes, indeed, that is how I felt. I was a skeptic of the impeachment process. However, the, and then his time was running out and the member was trying to talk over me. He said, however, I would say quite clearly that the phone call to Ukraine changed my mind about that. And that's why I'm sitting here and why it's so very imperative that you on that dais step forward and do your job. And it was like, wow, Noah Feldman, just keep talking, pal. That was so impressed. Right. 
Right. So Noah Feldman was the one who first set up the idea that, uh, you know, the framers felt that the prospect of re-election was not enough of a deterrent against abuses of power. And in fact, re-election itself could be the reason for an abuse of power. Yeah. And therefore, that's why you would, quote unquote, it has nothing to do with overturning an election. It has to do with protecting the republic. Uh, but you know what you're saying is that he was definitely out of central casting. This oh. was, you know, this is the paper chase professor there, right? <laughs> um, and with the hair and, and oh, uh, everything and, and the accent and uh, the was, way he delivered. Was, yeah, it was, I lo- I, it was just fantastic. I mean, you just, I couldn't, could not take my eyes off of him. I was just like, I love you, Noah Feldman. You're the man. I'm looking at this to say, did he really help move the ball forward, or was he I think too he much? Or was he too much of a character to no. be seen as as somebody who would be taken seriously or be taken as partisan? Now, well, and that's I, the issue. The partisan yeah. issue is there because I mean, the, the, and that that's an argument that we can have with with Jerry Nadler, which is, well, you know, why why did you choose three, you know, liberal? constitutional lawyers wouldn't it have been wiser to have found at least one person who is a republican who is on the side to to sort of you know as as opposed to showing everything is so partisan which is an argument that i had with all of the questions that were being addressed to these three it's like you know go after turley who's the republican who we're going to get into in into a moment but i thought that feldman was aces yeah okay so uh, one of the the term that you used to describe him was if, if i remember is passionate and controlled. And yes, I, think, I think that was a very apt description because I'm not sure I would apply that description to the next witness who came up, mm-hmm. which was Pamela Carlin from Stanford University. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what did you think of her? Okay, well, why don't you say what you thought of her first? <laughs> Obviously, I've, I've shown my hand already. You have, so why don't you go? Uh, with this. Uh, so, you know, she starts off by, she's clearly ticked off at Collins for suggesting that the witnesses haven't looked at the facts. That was, wait, wait uh, let's stop for a and, second. And, and that was fine. That. That, that, that was that, excellent. That in, in and of itself is fine. Yes, indeed. Um, and she was angry with that, and that, that's fine. She showed that, that she was angry with that. But then she continued to go beyond the remit that she had. So if we're talking about casting this, uh, casting these folks in the roles that they're playing, and if their role is to help us move the ball down to preserve the republic and preserve faith in these processes that we're undergoing here, that they're not mm-hmm. just partisan tests, I don't think she helped. So let me give you just one example of, of where this happened is that uh, when, she, when uh, I think it was Collins was asking her about uh, her political contributions. Yeah. She gave 2000 to Obama, 4000 to Hillary Clinton, and then mm, whatever. Slightly when, different numbers, but that's Yeah, whatever funny, the yes. numbers were. but 1200 Obama, like, 2000 Hillary. Right. So he asked why more to Hillary and uh, as an offhand comment. And then she got really annoyed and she said, I give money to, a lot of money to poor people because there's so many poor people in the world right now. Right. It was actually and, Matt Gates who, who okay, she Matt had Gates, this back okay. and forth with. But Thanks. Yeah. So I think that was, okay, you just went beyond, now you're introducing other topics into this to, and really showing your hands of, you just don't like Republicans, you don't like the Republican agenda. And I think that that in that one instance, more than the other instance that everybody else is talking about, which we can mention in a second, but that one instance is, I think, clearly said that she kind of undermined what her role was. That's like, if you're casting the role of the ghost of Christmas future in, uh, in A Christmas Carol, <laughs> and the actor comes out there and starts doing a juggling act, right? 
They might be the best juggler in the world, and you might enjoy their juggling, but that was not the role they were cast to do. Fair enough. All right, Fair so enough. That, okay, that I'm, my... I'm coming. I'm coming. Let me come back at you about yeah. Pamela Carlin, and I, 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 I hear your point. Okay, I hear your point. I see the validity of it, and. I thought her moment with Collins at the top of the hearing was uh, instrumental to the rest of the day and powerful because Collins was swimming and really didn't have any place to go. Mm-hmm. And so he's taking these little shots here, little shots there. And we're going to talk about Collins in a moment. But when she came back and said, how dare you, essentially? How dare you impute? Like, I spent my whole Thanksgiving reading this. What was fascinating about that was here we are in a situation where the Republic is in question. And someone is coming forward and expressing their absolute outrage about it. That's not something you see all the time. No. And I actually was fine with that and appreciated that to a certain extent. I do see your point that there are some people who can just shut that off. But also, it, for me, as, a, as an audience watching it, it was like, yeah, someone needs to speak out at the outrageousness of this situation. And here is someone who, you know, I read an but article not, about but her. But not the constitutional lawyer. I, I okay. It, I, I hear, your, a, I hear She you. was playing the role of one of the Democrats on the committee. That's the role that she had put herself into with the way that she responded to these and went again went beyond the remit. This is what you were saying about uh, Noah Feldman, is that he was passionate yet controlled. He mm-hmm. stopped himself at the at the boundary of talking about what impeachment means. He didn't talk about <laughs> Republican policy here. He didn't talk about his own personal anger uh, or animosity. He was. He knew what his role was, uh, and, and I don't think she she understood what her role was in terms of because I don't need to, to convince you about this, and and while you enjoyed having her there, not enjoyed is the wrong word, but you appreciated having her there doing that. Mm-hmm. It's not you that we're worried about, right? It's the folks out there who think that this process is purely partisan. However, there are fair enough. That that is absolutely true. And in that on that angle, you are correct. And I that's why I say I hear you. I do hear your point. But also, there's something positive to me about having someone. And we saw this a little bit with Taylor at the uh, in the intelligence committee. He had moments of just absolute outrage about what was going on, and many of them did. Fiona Hill did. And I think that there's value to that as well. Um, I think that there's there's movement there to see. You know, it's like. It's like hearing someone scream last night. I was, it, my wife and I were sitting and I heard, we heard a woman cry in like a block away. And we were like, oh my God, we, this, this requires attention, right? And then we went out and we gave attention to it and everything was fine. But that sort of level of, of scream or is, can sometimes gain some attention. But here's the, here's the difference between Pamela Carlin as an American citizen she wasn't brought in here as an American citizen who was upset about this. She was brought mm-hmm. in here as an arbiter of what the constitutional principles were. The difference between that and Fiona Hill, Fiona Hill took an oath to protect the national interests of the United States. I get that. And so but- when she was upset, when she expressed her outrage, she expressed her outrage in that that oath was being undermined by other people. I get I so get, I think you, I get what you're saying. I, I get what I hear. Again, I say... I hear you. I also say this is a television experience where people are watching, and watching her was compelling. Compelling for you, but this is the point I'm saying. It's compelling for you, but it's not compelling for the people who need to be convinced. It actually helped drive people into their partisan tribes. People who you. you need to convince. And that's what, this is the only metric that I judge this on. 
is that is it moving the needle from people who think that this process is partisan to people who think this process is fair? And I think she moved the needle in the opposite direction. And I say again, I hear you. Moving on to Michael Gearhart. Well, hold on. Um, Before we move on to Michael Gearhart. Oh, you want to talk about this? Yeah, we do have to just make a mention of it because this is the one that made all the news. And I think this was, of all the things, I'm, I'm, you know, criticizing Carla's performance. But on this one, I... My criticism is is very muted, and this is when she mentioned the uh, President Trump's son, yeah. uh, when she was talking about monarchs. While he can name his son Baron, he can't make him a Baron. Talking about the you know, Trump, uh, President is not a king. Cute line. Then she got all this guff about you know, like mm-hmm. she uh, brought brought in a minor child into this yeah. process, and uh, you know, this is Chelsea Clinton. Amy Carter, there's a whole bunch of presidential children who got a hell of a lot more than this. And I, I don't think it was, I think the reaction to that part of it was overblown. The only point that I have as a critique of this is that, again, this feeds into my thing that she came here prepared with lines. She came yep. here prepared just as the Democratic members of the committee were with their lines mm-hmm. about performing it. And that's why, again, I think she undermined the process to me. I, I will say, I will say this though: when people are getting so outraged about what people say, uh, when President Trump is in London, uh, you know, crossing the water, crossing the border edge, and cha- he's changed all the rules of decorum for our country. Yep. Um, and so th- that's just one other thing that I would like to put out there. Okay. All so, right. Now let's move on to Michael Gearhart. So Gearhart. You know, he, he he was interesting, right? So this is the, the University of North Carolina. Professor. He was the third of the uh, of the Democratic uh, witnesses that were called. And, you know, kind of boring, really, uh, in comparison to uh, Feldman and to Carlin. But Gearhart did have what I thought was one of the best moments of the day when he said, if this isn't impeachable, then nothing is impeachable. Yep. That was a very powerful moment um, and a real headline, I thought. Right, because this is in contrast to what Turley said, which we'll discuss in a minute, which is you have to look at what this does to the Constitution, to faith in the system. And we're not just simply talking about a president asking for, you know, a personal favor, you know, a bribe uh, just for himself, asking for a a president to undermine faith in the institutions and our elections, which are the the basically— I mean, this is everything hinges on our faith that our elections are fair. Mm-hmm. And once you undermine that faith and you try to do something to undermine that faith, then there's no principles on which the American Republic exists. And I think that's what, you know, when he said, if this isn't, if that isn't impeachable, then nothing is then, impeachable. Then, then what would be? Also, you yeah. know, as interesting as the day went on, he had this, this is an actor thing. This is a performance thing. He, I found him, he was using his right hand to punctuate all of his words. So he, he was able to stay quite calm in his expression. But his, if you watch his hand as the day went on, mm-hmm. his hand was screaming as he was speaking. Oh, wow. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was quite fascinating to watch. And I, I, ended, up, I ended up liking him quite a bit more. I, I, you know, I thought of him as sort of the boring one, but he also had some really incisive and positive moments. All right, let's move on to Jonathan Turley because that's, he's, you know, they were all stars in their own way, meaning they all had big moments. But Jonathan Turley deserves some real examination. I was up all night thinking about this yeah. guy. Let me what give do you, you think? Let, let me give some background for folks Please. who don't, don't know who he is. Uh, so Jonathan Turley, 
uh, testified in 1998 during the Clinton impeachments. He was, one, he was an expert witness then for the Republicans. So I think the Republicans thought that he would be a great witness because he said that Clinton would be impeached, should be impeached, but Trump should not be impeached. But let me break down, but that's also partisan. So let me break down what happened there. The reason why he said that Clinton should be impeached was because Clinton committed a crime. And that crime was the crime of perjury, of lying under oath about an affair that he had during an investigation, uh, a deposition that he was giving about a case involving a land deal that happened prior to when he was president of the United States. All right. So none of this had anything to do with an abuse of power of the office. Right. It all had to do with committing a crime while he was president. And Turley said that that in and of itself is impeachable because it undermines, this is what he said, the House decision to impeach establishes the expectations of a people in the conduct of the chief executive and serves as a critical deterrent to presidential misconduct. And he goes on to say that, so automatically, if you commit a crime, you should be impeached. The Senate may decide for various reasons not to convict on that impeachment, but the impeachment has to go forward if you commit a crime. And then he basically said that nothing that he's seen now is a crime. We don't have the information yet uh, to suggest that a crime was committed and therefore impeachment. He also said, this is what makes him so fascinating. He also said that if this is all true and you can prove the quid pro quo, then it's absolutely impeachable. And he said what he said late, because he was really being worn down over the course of this day. It was those three other constitutional lawyers were looking at him with daggers in their eyes, right? And at the end, he said, look, I'm not saying you can't do this. I'm just saying you can't do it this way, right? So that's his that's his push. That's right. his point of view. However, here's here's what makes him tricky, really tricky. Turley had value in 1998 because what he said was, I voted for Bill Clinton, and here I am speaking against him. In this testifying moment that he had yesterday, he said, I did not support President Trump, meaning I didn't vote for President Trump. He didn't say whether he voted for you know, McMullen or Hillary Clinton. But he said, I didn't vote for President Trump, but I'm here defending him. It's a, and it's very powerful because he, which is one thing that I still think the Democrats should have taken more advantage of because all the other three clearly were against Trump the whole entire time. But I think he's being tricky here, Turley. And I've gone back and forth on this. Going, I had a moment last night where I thought, you know, he's really giving the Democrats a positive roadmap, saying, wait it out, let let things um, let things develop, make sure that you get the testimony of Giuliani, of of Mulvaney, and of Pompeo, and all of these other people, get the tax returns, and just let it play out. But the problem with that is. Maybe that doesn't work so well either because Nancy Pelosi is on the other side saying, no, we got to get this done because I've got people in purple districts who want to get this off their plate as we get closer to the election. So it's very this was my heavy lifting Remember, stuff. this is my concern all along. And this is sure. why I was and, and folks who want to go back and listen to our early episodes will know that I was not in favor of proceeding with an impeachment inquiry early on, like many people, like Noah Feldman, in fact. Right, exactly. I was going to say. Is that... Uh, is that we, we didn't have any evidence that, that Donald Trump was doing anything that was unexpected of him from the time that he was elected. Even if it was unacceptable in many ways, it wasn't unexpected. This Ukraine uh, That takes you over. Right. That, that changed it because then that's saying, okay, we have some evidence that suggests that Donald Trump is doing something that will undermine our elections. 
And so what, what Turley is saying is that, well, we do, that's an inference. We actually don't have enough evidence to, right. to tie the two together. Now, in common sense parlance, that's pretty much what it sounds like. But what he's saying is that under legal standards, you don't have enough evidence to convict on and that. to give him credit, he's saying you're talking about the biggest, like you're trying to in, in, impeach the president of the United yeah. States. So you need to get to yeah. 10 here. But, you can't pull it off with a solid seven and a half, eight. Like right. you need to have it lock, stock and barrel. Right, right. Which, yeah. is, which is the comparison to Clinton is that you had the perjury. A charge. I mean, he wasn't. Clinton was not charged with perjury because you can't charge somebody. You can't charge the president, which is what Donald Trump Feldman. reminds us and to also, all the time. And what Feldman countered Turley by saying that president can't be charged with crimes by his own Justice Department. Therefore, impeachment is the only recourse. And right. he said it in his very charming Noah right. Feldman way. Right. So what I what have I said all along that I would like to hear in this these impeachment uh, this impeachment investigation before we got to charges of impeachment is I want to hear from the Oversight Committee on Trump's tax returns. Right, that's what because you've been saying. If we, have, if we have evidence that Trump cheated on his taxes, that would clearly meet uh, Turley's standard of, you know, it, it's a crime. If you have evidence that the crime was committed, it was clearly committed, then that is impeachable automatically. And then we uh, get into the whole other idea right now with Pelosi coming forward and saying, yeah, we're moving forward on this now. So they're going to keep yeah. on their faster timetable with the hope that Chief Justice Roberts is going to bring all of this to trial and, and sort of, you know, get Bolton to testify, Mulvaney to testify. And it's, 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 it is absolutely imperative that we do get the full testimony of this. Right. So because if we don't, yeah. we're in trouble. Go ahead, I think I'm sorry. so, too. So we're talking about the, the back and forth here, right, mm -hmm. uh, with this. And there were a bunch of questions back and forth about, you know, we mean this, or the, this definition. They were, they were going to back to Dr. Samuel Johnson's 18th century dictionary <laughs> to determine, you know, what bribery meant or what high crimes and misdemeanor meant. And um, an interesting uh, an interesting. Uh, context there. But what I want to ask about is the, the councils. Now, when we were looking at the Intelligence Committee hearings, the two councils, the Democratic Council and yeah. Republican Council, played a big role. So Daniel Goldman got a lot of kudos as the interrogator for on behalf of the Republicans. Steve on behalf Cast of the Democrats. I mean, on behalf of the Democrats, thank you. Steve Castor on the behalf of the Republicans did not. He didn't seem to be quite up to the task, particularly yeah. in those early hearings. So on this one, we have Norman Eisen, who was a Democratic counsel, mm -hmm. and Paul Taylor as a Republican counsel. Yep. How do you think they did All right, on so behalf of their teams? I got a good answer on this, I think. Good. So to me, I thought Paul Taylor was very effective on the Republican side. Um, and I thought that Norman Eisen was not as effective on the Democratic side. And I have, a, I, I have actually I've broken it down to a simple reason. Eisen... Let's start with let's start with uh, Taylor. Taylor, if you watched it, was like just the facts, ma'am. This is what I'm saying. He's not. He didn't give any lead to any of his questions. He used his questions. He he didn't change his tone. He didn't go up at the end of questions. He just was giving questions and giving the the witnesses a chance to answer those questions, which was very very similar to how Daniel Goldman was going about it, if we remember. Right. It was very sort of uh, passionate but dispassionate all at the same time. Taylor, to me. Um, was was fabulous. Norman Eisen, 
was almost acting like one of the, to me, one of the Democratic people on that on at that table. He was clearly a, a Democrat who was trying to, you know, sort of show the jury how he feels about things along the way, which I think was less effective than what Goldman did and what Taylor did. Castor was just out of his out of his element, as far as I'm concerned. He was just the Republican during the Intelligence Committee. I mean, he he just he he didn't have anywhere to go, and he kind of just fumbled his way through. Um, but so I was impressed by Taylor and Eisen. Uh, less impressed, though, not as bad as what Castor was doing. I yeah, I'm with you 100. percent I think Taylor did as good a job for the Republicans uh, in the Judiciary Committee as Goldman did for the Democrats in the mm-hmm. Intelligence Committee. I think Eisen did a better job than Castor did. Yep. Uh, but Eisen, but both of them were clearly going down a partisan path to to support right. the narrative of their their <laughs> their congressional overseers, as it were. And, and and Eisen just happened to be nominally better at doing that than Castor was. So we're talking about the councils here, and one of the things that we have to remark is that Norman Eisen asked Turley one question and then spent the remainder of the 45 minutes that he had with the three Democratic witnesses. Yes. Whereas, so, and, the, and the Republican council turned that on its head and, and basically spent all, almost all of his time with Turley. And I think that was a big mistake, and, and, and that happened with the, with the members as well. Democratic yes, members why, only asked the Democrats as the Republicans. Ex- except for the, except, the gentleman from uh, Colorado, um, Rob, uh, I forgot his last name, I'm sorry, who, who went right at Turley and, and really got somewhere and yeah. said that in the Nixon allowed his chief of staff, um, Clinton wrote out all those answers, is President Trump doing that? And Turley was really stumped in that spot. And, that, and I just didn't understand why all of the members didn't spend the whole time going at Turley. We knew what everyone else was. We knew Feldman was going to be in support. Yeah. Go, go with the other guy. Yeah, what you should have done is what you said earlier, which was Turley is giving the Democrats a roadmap about how this becomes nonpartisan, how this becomes justified. So why don't you use your time to pull things out of Turley about, okay, if this happens, if that happens, yeah. what, you know, what, what about this contingency or that contingency to basically shake up his argument, but also to lay the groundwork that because some of these things are going to be discovered soon, that once these things are discovered, oh, Turley said that that was impeachable in our hearing. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. now we found it. And that's what he said we should be looking for. And now we found it. So Turley's on our has to be on our side now. You know, basically backing that argument into a corner, but pulling out of him all the rationales that you would need based on evidence that we hope is to come. Or maybe they're just thinking we're not hoping for evidence to come because, as you said, Nancy Pelosi wants to wrap this up so quickly that... All we're going yeah. to see is a partisan argument. I don't know. Uh, which is too bad. All right, let's go quickly now because we're, 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 wow, we're talking yes. about how the Republic's being challenged this week a lot. Yes. Let's just talk quickly about Jerry Nadler. Um, do you have, and do you have any, your quick thoughts on Jerry Nadler and Doug Collins? Yeah, I mean, Jerry, Jerry Nadler came into this. There was, you know, problematic because of his history. He argued against uh, the Clinton impeachment when he was in the House back in 1998. So they were using his words. The Republicans were using his words against him. He's seen as partisan. Um, I don't think he ran the hearing all that badly. I'm, know, well, I'm gonna. I want to grade on a scale. I'm gonna grade on a ahead. scale. Jerry Nadler in the Lewandowski one to ten was a two. In running that, it turned into an absolute circus. So that when when um, 
when uh, Schiff was running the Intelligence Committee, it was like, well, there, there's a nine. Not perfect, but damn good. So Nadler coming in at two, it would, the question was, how is he going to handle it when the Republicans start giving him parliamentary issues, which they did from the jump? They were trying to get Nadler off his game, which, which they were able to do in Lewandowski. What I saw was a man who had been rehearsing. <laughs> he was he uh, he was not a nine, but he was up to a five or a six, which was acceptable as far as I was concerned. I was very happy that Nadler was able to keep control, not get not not get thrown off his game, because that was a major concern that I had. We'll see if right. he's going to be capable right. to continue that. That's why right. this mean, process goes. Talk about that. This is what I was thinking about that grandstanding with Corey Lewandowski when he appeared before the committee, and and again it was Matt Getz who Gates. Sorry, Matt Gates from Florida, who basically engaged in the biggest grandstanding moment with Lewandowski. Yeah. Uh, you know, about I can't say this, but you can. And letting Lewandowski go on uh, to impugn the Democrats on the committee. Uh, but I thought that Gates was was largely right on that that exchange with Carlin, which we just talked about. And, you know, yeah, we talked about that. Down, right. So so I think, you know, Gates actually had a better performance Yes, he in did. This one than, than he did in that one with Lewandowski. Whereas as Doug well. Collins, Doug Collins, who's very smart and going through his own sort of you know <laughs> days of our lives drama right now in Georgia between <laughs> Trump and the governor there. Yeah, I was wondering we, how much that played into it. So for, for people, don't, Doug Collins is the ranking Republican member, so he gets the forty-five minutes. And he gets to say a lot as much as the uh, chair does. Uh, but he had just found out uh, moments or, or, or day before or so yeah. that he was not going to be appointed to the vacant. Uh, Senate seat in uh, Georgia, which we're not going into today because we have such a chock full show. But there's there's some. But I was wondering how much I was wondering how much that might play into uh, what was going on with him and his rapid fire opening statement and a whole bunch of other things. But it just came off as weak, as far as I was concerned. Collins, who I've always been impressed by and always been a little scared of in this process. You know, when Jim Jordan steps up to the plate, it's it's or or Gates or Collins. You always it's like you know a big hitter in baseball stepping up to the plate. You're like, ah, we're gonna be able to get this guy out. But Collins was weak yesterday, and he was speaking incredibly quickly and not really making cogent or positive points. So I actually give him a low grade um, on how he did yesterday. So let's move on now. Let's let's get back now to the prognosis, okay? So at the end of each of these weeks, we say, where is the Republic at this week, and how does it look like things are going to go? So I'm going to leave that to you, and I ask you, Patrick, what's your prognosis? Well, I want to come back to that quote that you read at the top of the episode from Washington. It was from Washington's farewell address when he left the presidency. And uh, just a side note, it was suggested to us by a listener, Lori Hollins, who sent it to us on Twitter. And so Please. if you if you have an idea for for a quote that, that Ian a should Washington read, Washington quote, Washington quote uh, contacts on Twitter at Guardians OTR. Uh, you can message us there. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see if we can, we can work it in. That one was yeah. just a perfect one to work in uh, this week. But it was a warning about factions. You didn't read the entire quote. You just wrote the, the, the meaty part of it. But... Uh, this is President Washington's warning about factions or what we call political parties today. And I felt that it can really cut both ways. And we saw it in this hearing this week is that we have, I think, both sides are using this process and short circuiting what should be a really significant examination of what is going on with our republic through the lens of what President Trump is able to get away with uh, as something that, that is really, really a serious challenge. Uh, but it's not because 
the parties on both sides are using this process, either by short-circuiting or looking at the election calendar, whatever it happens to be, just to further their own ends. And I'm really worried about that. Yeah, I understand. I, I, it's funny because I look at that cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterwards the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. And I saw that very much as President Trump, uh, as, as a warning about President Trump. Because the issue is not only are you in that position of power now, but if you're able to tear down the oversight of the House and change our three you know, branches of government in, in such a substantial way, well, then you've destroyed the very engines which have lifted you to this place. And right. it's, uh, it's And this it's was very... the argument that, that Taylor was making, that Turley was making, is that while we always have had partisan animosity, and you know Washington was worried about it, we've always had it, is that within each party, a majority of that party would look at what was going on in government, in, in politics, and say, there's a step beyond which we won't go. We won't step over that precipice. We will always reel it back if it looks like it's going to threaten the institutions. We got very close, and we, obviously civil war is, is one of them, in which we went over that precipice for a bit. Uh, but we were able to pull it back. There was always just enough virtue in the Republic, as uh, Secretary of War Seward said to Lincoln, to keep us, the Republic, together. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we are at a point, and we've been at a point for the, that's been growing over the past 20 years, where at least in within one party, the majority has now moved from protecting the republic to looking for partisan gain. And now I'm worried that we're moving in that direction with the other party as well. well both parties, there will be a majority faction that's controlling the party that doesn't care about these institutions, that is willing to overthrow them, as, as you read, to uh, overthrow those very engines which have lifted them uh, to, into, into power. Uh, and that's what I'm worried that's happening now on both sides. This is the first time that we've had this conversation where um, my, where I say the prospects are weak presently. Uh, every other week I said, well, no, I see, I see upside here, I see upside there. Uh, I'm starting to see less upside, and I'm starting to... Uh, be fearful. Now, this is a, a moving, a, a moving yeah, this situation. Is, yeah, this is this so, is not a final verdict. This not is just, at all. This uh, is just you know, how how are we doing this week? Right. Um, and hopefully week, we can dig ourselves out. This week is not great. That's uh, that's where I see things. All right, so let's move on to our hot take segment. Maybe we can, uh, you know, find some uplifting uh, bits uh, towards the end of this show. Uh, so this is where we take 90 seconds to discuss a different item in the news. And when you hear this sound, it'll be time to move on to the next topic. So our first topic up is an Atlantic article that you pointed out to me about how some of Trump's followers are seeing him in the role of the biblical King David. So what's about what's up about that? Right. Well, Rick Perry, Secretary Rick Perry, uh, sort of brought this to the forefront, though this is something we discussed earlier in an earlier episode, I think about three months ago, when we were talking about the evangelicals and how, why they're in such support of a man who has you know, married three times, children with all three, so many of the, the issues that he has had in his life. And what, what we found then was that the evangelicals were saying that he, like King David, sometimes imperfect men, 
come forward by God and to do God's work. Um, and so Rick Perry actually came out and said that on television. I think it was last week. It was we would have been talking. This is one of the things we would have been discussing the previous week. Um, this idea that President Trump is, you know, planned from God to come and do the work of God, um, like King David, and it's. Um, it's 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 shocking, you know. I mean, President Trump has not had a Goliath moment yet, unless it was building the uh, the ice rink in Central Park. But I don't think you know that 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 quite qualifies in the same way. What are, what were your thoughts about it? Yeah, I think uh, we've talked about this before because you brought this up about mm-hmm. uh, Donald Trump being an imperfect vehicle, and that there is um, there is a tradition in in some uh, some religious groups about the idea that the person themselves does not need to be perfect, but they need to do your ends, and that's that's acceptable. Okay, well, let's move on now to Trump reversing the Navy's decision to oust Edward Gallagher from the SEALs. Yes, this is, uh, for those who haven't followed this closely, so Edward Gallagher was in the Navy SEALs. Uh, he was court-martialed. Donald Trump reversed that court-martial uh, because of some very heinous things that he did. And there's photographic evidence of the heinous things that he did. And we won't go into that. But then, you know, after the court martial over, the, the, the secretary of the Navy said, well, we're still, we got to kick him out of the seals. We got to, we, in order to maintain uh, discipline and respect for the chain of command, we've got right. to take him out. And Donald Trump said, no, you're not doing that. And he stepped in. Now as commander in chief, he has full power to step in and do that. But, but then Mark Esper resigned. Right. As the secretary. No, I'm sorry. Richard, Mark Esper, Richard Spencer um, resigned as the Navy secretary saying that this cannot stand and I will not stand for this and wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post. Uh, There was also a a fabulous op-ed written by Max Boot uh, this past weekend where he was talking about Trump in regards to the military, an experience he had with a very close friend of his who was a Marine who said that this actually ends his association, not Max Boot, um, but that this Marine ends his association with President Trump because it is the exact opposite of what must happen in the military. Yeah, and it's the military sign. is to work and it needs to have that chain of command, that respect for the military protocol and not become a cult of the leader, of the right. dear leader. And that's what this is turning into. And remember, I think, I don't know whether it was on the last episode, two episodes ago, I said, are we moving towards a military coup? Well, not based on what Boot wrote in this op-ed. Yeah. Well, uh, the 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 higher up in the military, but we have to move. We'll follow, on. we'll follow up with that on a, on another time. So let's move on to uh, you know some of the Republicans who have been particularly conspicuous in their defense of Trump this week. Uh, John Kennedy and Devin Nunes. Do you have uh, thoughts on either one of those? Yeah. Well, well, I, I, I want to talk about John Kennedy. John Kennedy is an Oxford graduate. He's an incredibly intelligent man, former Democrat in Louisiana, who switched over to the Republican Party and who is flat out using Putin's talking points against America right now. And it is shocking because what ends up happening is he goes on, it was not this past Sunday, but the Sunday before, he went on Fox News with uh, with Wallace and he sort of put forward this idea and Wallace shut him down. The next night he goes on to Cuomo's show. You're talking about says, the, you know, Ukraine. You, the, yeah, the, the, and he the, says, the I'm, I was Ukraine wrong. Was... I was wrong. I was wrong. But then he goes on to Chuck Todd's show this coming Sunday and we just start the whole process again. So it, it really makes you wonder whether he's compromised in some way because he's too smart for this. It's sad. The other, the other thing I want to talk about, Devin Nunes, 
is that so, you know, Devin Nunes was a key questioner, the ranking member on the Intelligence Committee, going after those witnesses. And then it turns up in the in the report that's issued by the Intelligence Committee that he was in on some of these calls with the folks in the Ukraine that were working for Giuliani. Well, this is a terrible uh, surprise. Yeah, no, it's not. It, it really it, isn't a surprise. But I mean, the, the, the gall that you yeah. have to have to sit there and go after these witnesses when you are a party to what happened. But if you look at how Nunez went after those people, there was something in there that wasn't kosher. It wasn't yeah, clean. Yeah. And you could tell. And he never went and talked to the press It's just afterwards. amazing where we are with these folks right now. Okay. Kamala so, Harris dropped out. Kamala Harris. We've been talking about Kamala Harris from the beginning of this show. She dropped out. What happened? Yeah, so Kamala Harris was somebody that we had talked about who had showed a lot of promise, particularly in the Kavanaugh hearings in the Judiciary Committee. And then and her 22,000, I'm sorry to interrupt, her 22,000 supporters with her in Oakland right. on the day that she announced, which was a magnificent showing by her. Right, right. And then it all fell apart. Now, there's been a lot written about uh, with uh, the internal problems yeah. in her campaign that they really didn't have a clear direction. A fascinating article in the New York Times that should yeah, be read. Yeah, yeah. so there's yeah, that, that, and it's an interesting because it, campaigns need to have a clear direction. They need to have, uh, you know, a, a a unit that works together on a common goal, and that just didn't seem to happen. And that's but good, also good. It, they they say, and I think it's appropriate. It's so hard to run for president that if you can't run a campaign properly, how can you be expected right. to run the country? But one that of it's the, a good symbol, right? But one of the things I want to talk about is what we've been talking about all along. Her performance as mm -hmm. a candidate was not. I, I've heard people say, "Oh, she's a talented candidate." No, she is not a talented candidate. No, she's she's a very capable politician, but she is not a talented candidate. We've been talking about that all along, we that have. she has undermined her message every time that she goes out there. That laugh that you pointed out to me and that I started paying closer attention to other people started noticing as well. And they just said, oh, she's trying to get away or whatever. I said, she's undermining. Think about it subliminally. She undermines her own message when she did that. And that was she's also part and parcel of it. Smart to get out now before California comes. Right. OK, moving on. All right. So uh, let's look at the remaining uh, 2020 field. So we have Biden holding on. Mayor Pete is gaining believers. No Bloomberg's question. making a, a splash. So what do you make of it? I don't know if I would go so far as to say making a splash, but he's he's jumping in the puddle and a little bit of water's coming up. So I guess that's a splash. Uh, let's talk Bloomberg quickly first. He's up to 5%. If I'm going to put out a, a prediction right now. Um, it's a big one, and I'm not sure it's right. But let's say I have a 30% chance of being right here. I think that because of the way the rules are set up in the Democratic Party, that we're going to end up in a brokered convention. And at that time, with Bloomberg and all of his money, he may very well end up being the nominee of this party okay. when that convention I, happens. You know, I've changed my, I've always thought, what was his end game? What was his end game on this getting in? Because he can get a few percentage points, but would he be the nominee? Would he be the nominee even in a brokered convention, which I don't think is going to happen? And then I was listening to a podcast with his campaign manager this morning, and I hit an aha moment. I don't think he's running to be the nominee. I think he's running because everybody's spending hundreds of millions of dollars in Iowa and New Hampshire, and they're not spending that money in states that you're going to need to win in, in November. And Donald Trump is doing that. And so he's saying, I'm skipping those early states and spending my money in these other states that are going to be important in November 
because he's helping to lay the groundwork for a campaign organization that I think he can hand off to somebody else. Sounds good to me. As the nominee. I I'm think that's where that. he's going. I think that's I, what's I, happening. Okay, but let me quickly get into this Buttigieg. Buttigieg is seeing a big jump, really big jump in net favorability in since February. He's up 14% amongst African-American voters, but up 34% amongst white voters. Yeah. I think that we're seeing something happening with Mayor Pete. Yeah, we'll follow up with him more next week. And I'll have more polling numbers on this next week as uh, as well. Now we're moving on to our Guardian of the Week. And we're, this is going to be an interesting one this time because we agree, Patrick. Yep. We don't have anybody that we're naming as Guardian of the Week. And uh, I want to talk about what our qualifications would be for Guardian of the Week. And I think part of it was, you know, both of us felt that allowing uh, Sunland into the list on our last episode was not the best choice. I take full responsibility for that because what we were doing was we were talking about Anita Hill. We were talking about all of the, the uh, Fiona people. Hill. I'm sorry. Anita yeah. Hill is a whole different ball of wax. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about Fiona Hill. Um, and I added Gordon Sondland in there because I thought he didn't have to come, right? Uh, he, he chose to, to, to speak. But then other things came out over the course of these two weeks. And I had some regret about that. And then Patrick, when we spoke about it, you really said you were mad at yourself for letting, letting Sondland even on the list, right. even with my vote. And I agreed with you. And so we've changed our rules now for Guardian of the Week. I don't think it was specified before. Um, but you want to share what our new right. rules are? So our, our rules are, our, our qualification has always been somebody who is putting their own personal, risking their own personal or political future in defense of the republic in some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that now uh, we have to make clear that we both must agree on this. There's got to be That's an unanimous right. choice going forward. It has to be unanimous. They have to meet that qualification. To get into this very select area. Because right. it's it, And we don't have to always have a guardian of the week. We're, we're not having one this week. Right. Um, but I, I, I take that and I, I take responsibility for Gordon Sondland because I had my own regrets, as I but said. But if you do have a suggestion for guardian of the week, because we look for... Uh, Guardians Week, not just nationally, but locally. If you remember, we had a, a Nebraska legislator who was our Guardian of the Week uh, because he stepped forward and did something that was out of the ordinary and risked his own personal political future. He, he was uh, a few episodes ago, we named uh, him. Uh, so if you have a, a suggestion, as well as a suggestion for a George Washington quote, please send it to us again on our Twitter feed at Guardians OTR because we're looking for those guardians, those unsung guardians who yeah. may not be getting recognition because they're not on the national stage, but they're doing their part in your state or locality. All right, that's great. so that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. And please make sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And please consider giving us a rating so others can find us. Also, check out our website at guardians-republic.com. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be back with a new episode next week. See you.